Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, folks, um, perhaps we'll make a start um, today. I'm just going to give a very brief uh, overview of where we've come from and where we are today and what we're going to look at. So this course is an introduction to the Western tradition. And uh, we've already looked at um, Hellenism, the spread of Greek culture and civilization by Alexander the Great militarily. This great man, as he's called in the West, as a military conqueror. Um, we looked at Plato, Aristotle, who was uh, Alexander's teacher. And we looked at some aspects of Judaism. That was on Tuesday. And Thursday, we looked at the Jewish Bible and the, uh, the Talmud, the Mishnah and the, uh, the Gemara. We looked at the four Gospels and the historical Jesus. And we looked at the, uh, the early church um, up to the Emperor Constantine. And I stress my view that Christianity is a religion about Jesus, the Gospel about Jesus, whereas the historical Jesus preached an injure, which is not about himself really, but about God and other things. So there's a, a, a change from the gospel about Jesus to the gospel of Jesus. Um, so the gospel of Jesus to the gospel about Jesus in the later church. And today we're, we're going to look at the Renaissance. Uh, and indeed you have arrived. <laughs> How timely. And uh, the Reformation. And why the Renaissance and Reformation are, are such influential forces in the world today. And we're going to look at some examples of the difference the Renaissance made to our understanding of the world. And we're going to be looking at a guy called Erasmus. You might have heard of, actually. There's the Erasmus program in Europe for students. Uh, Martin Luther, who was a pioneer or the initiator or the instigator of the Reformation. Calvin, John Calvin and a poor man called Michael Servetus, who was burnt at the stake for his crimes, and we'll come to that at the end. So today is about the Renaissance and the Reformation. Now, I showed you this picture, I think, right at the beginning of um, our conversation, and it is officially called the School of Athens. And this is a fresco, as it's called, and it's painted on a wall in the Vatican in Rome. And the reason I'm showing it to you again is this painting... Um, is often seen to summarise the very best in Renaissance ideals, the Renaissance um, concept. And as I said before, the, beginning, uh, the, the very centre, the epicentre of this huge picture, which, by the way, is vast, it's much, much bigger in reality, is Plato and uh, Aristotle. Plato is looking up, you can just about make out his hand, pointing to the transcendent, and Aristotle is has his hand out here looking at the world because he founded basically zoology, biology and all these terrestrial sciences. Uh, and here you have uh, many other famous figures in the ancient uh, world, including Ibn Rushd. I think I misled you before I said it was Ibn Sina. It's actually Ibn Rushd um, who is featured here. I think that might be him there actually with a turban. And um, Plato is modelled on Leonardo da Vinci from life. So this is actually what he looked like. So this was painted in about 1509 by Raphael, the great Renaissance painter. And as I say, it sums up what the Renaissance is actually about. So what is the Renaissance about? So the Renaissance, I'll give you my summary here. By the way, if you've got the glossary, I give a brief definition under the word Renaissance of what the Renaissance is. And all, all I'm going to say, by the way, is very simple. It's, it's simplistic. It's a summary just scratching the surface. There's no way is, is this a, an in-depth analysis really. So I say the Renaissance is the literary and artistic revival which took place in Italy during the 14th and 15th centuries. It spread all over Europe to Germany, France, even England. Um, and it's basically a return to the classical glories of ancient Greece and Rome. The glories in, in writings and people like Cicero and, uh, and the, uh, the great uh, Greek writers like Plato and Aristotle, hence they're in the centre there. And the slogan, uh, one of the, the big slogans of the Renaissance in Latin is ad fontes, uh, 
which means back to the original sources. And that's a good summary, I think, of the movement's aims. So what does Adfontes mean? Well, it means, you know, cutting through all this medieval stuff and, and, and scholasticism, which doesn't make any sense, going back to the glories of the, the people uh, of ancient Greece and Rome who brought us such enlightenment and uh, learning. So it's a, it was cutting through centuries of church tradition and back to the glories of the ancient world. Now, I want to tell you a story of this guy. Uh, he's... Erasmus, of course. I like his. He's got very nice tasting clothes, actually. Very, very, uh, very nicely dressed out. Um, and he's a Dutch, he was the Dutch Renaissance scholar, Erasmus, born in 1466. And he was probably the greatest European Renaissance scholar, arguably, of his day. And he did many things. But I want to focus on one thing that he did that made a big difference. And he published... He was the first to publish an edition of the Greek New Testament in 1515. And all English translations of the Bible had been based on his Greek translation up to probably the 20th century. Hugely influential. But there's an interesting story about him. Um, And I want to share with you the story about these verses. So this is from the Bible, the King James Bible. Obviously, it's an English translation. And this is from the... This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! (sighs) Smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Letter of John, chapter 5, verse 7 to 8, and it reads, For there are three that bear witness, that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, These three are one, and these are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, and the water, and so it goes on. Now, the point about this is, this is the Trinity verse. Clearly states in the Bible, Christian theologians, that in 1 John, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Amazing. But, (laughs) the big but... Back to Erasmus. Because he was a Renaissance scholar, he wants to cut through church tradition and go back to the original sources, the Greek manuscripts of the Bible, the New Testament. So um, in, in, uh, in Holland, he gathered together the best New Testament manuscripts he could find in Greek, not the Latin ones produced by you know, the, Vulgate, the Vulgate translation produced by Jerome, but as far as he could, the oldest Greek manuscripts, because the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't written in Latin or in English or anything else. So, and, and he produced, as I say, the first critical edition in, in, in a, a scholarly sense, with careful attention to the exact wording, the original wording, as far as we could ascertain. But there was a problem. The problem is he couldn't find any Greek manuscripts with this verse in it. Where was the Trinity verse? It's <coughs> missing. And indeed, it is missing. It's not in any of our early manuscripts. For example, there's the famous Codex Sinaiticus in the British Library in London. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, and that's probably in the mid-4th century, the earliest complete copy in the world. There's also the Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican, similar kind of date. They don't have that on in there. No early father, no early churchman quotes this verse as being in the Bible. So there's a problem. So, so Erasmus, bless him, as a good scholar, a Renaissance scholar, produced his critical edition of the Greek New Testament, minus this verse. There was an outcry. The Catholic Church went ballistic. How could you take out the only clear Trinity verse in the Bible? I mean, this is serious, serious. It's like, you know, Surah Fatiha is not, I mean, there's no comparison. 
So what he said was, and I'm not making this up, you can look at it, he said to these, the church, okay, it's not in my Greek manuscripts. If you could produce for me a Greek manuscript, give me a Greek manuscript with this verse in, I'll pop it back in to my critical edition. And lo and behold, the church produced a Greek manuscript with that verse in. They literally made a Greek manuscript with that verse in. And true to his word, he put it back in. Now, the church manufactured a Greek manuscript. They didn't actually find one. This is the point. So he put it back in. And that's why, even in the King James Version, centuries later, it's in the Bible. Not because anyone thinks it was in the original, but because Erasmus agreed to pop it back in if the church could give him a Greek manuscript, which they, which they did. So it was only really in the beginning of the 20th century when biblical scholars moved away from Erasmus's uh, critical text and they went back to far, far earlier manuscripts than Erasmus ever knew about. He didn't know about the Codex Sinaiticus, by the way, that uh, modern translations, nearly all modern translations, don't include this verse because it's not original. The question is, where does it come from? Well, um, the idea, it appears, I, I'm told, uh, to have originated as a comment in the margins of a Latin manuscript around the end of the 4th century, what's called a gloss. So someone in the 4th century in the Latin translation added these words in, like a comment or an explanation or a bit of detail, and then later people, when they copied that manuscript, decided it belonged in the Bible. <laughs> and that seems to be how it snuck in. But, so, but King James Version people, in the, particularly in the United States, there's a big movement, they love the King James Version, it's a very popular translation. Uh, they still keep that in there, even though virtually all scholars in the world now know that it's not original. Even, I'm told, the NIV, which is the most, one of the most popular, the New International Version, evangelical translations, when they have the Bible put in hotel rooms and bed and breakfasts, they actually keep that verse in as well. Um, but not, all the other translations don't have it in. So this is, in a sense, a fruit of um, Renaissance scholarship, going back to the sources, checking them out. Is later tradition accurate? Sometimes it's not. And the most important Trinity verse in the whole Bible is a casualty of that and gets removed because it's not original. Now, I want to show you another example of the fruit, what I'm calling the fruit of Renaissance scholarship. And this is called the Donation of Constantine. I'll explain what this means in a sec. So the Donation of Constantine is a forged Roman imperial decree by which the 4th century emperor, Constantine the Great, supposedly transferred all his authority over the Roman Empire to the Pope. He basically said, Pope, Pope Sylvester in this case, the first, have all my authority. Can you imagine the Roman Emperor saying that? Now, what happened was a Renaissance scholar, who happened to be a Catholic priest, funnily enough, demonstrated that this donation is a document, by the way, called the Donation of Constantine. And throughout the medieval period, particularly in the 13th century, popes used to refer to it and tell, tell their uh, opponents, particularly in the East, the Orthodox Church, look, Constantine, the great emperor, gave us, gave us the papacy, authority over everything in the Roman Empire. I mean, can you imagine? And it was quoted by many popes to, to justify, legitimise their authority. So it's really serious. But there were doubts about its authenticity, and a Renaissance scholar demonstrated that it was a fake. It was a forgery. How did he do this? Well, he used Renaissance scholarship. So he detected that the style of writing in this alleged donation of Constantine was dated to the 8th century. And also that Constantine couldn't have legally given Pope Sylvester the powers anyway that the donation claimed. And also the document has numerous anachronisms. So this is a fruit of Renaissance scholarship. And here we have uh, the Pope. Uh, here we have Pope Sylvester, actually, allegedly. And Constantine bowing down and giving him uh, all his authority as Caesar to the church. And the church took this very seriously for, what, a thousand years or more to justify their rule over, over the Roman Empire. Can you believe it? So that's uh, another example of um, Renaissance scholarship making a huge difference to the Catholic Church's authority. 
Now, I'm going to move on. Oh, by the way, if you've got any questions, by the way, or any comments, please interrupt me because I don't. Yes. Constantine was Constantinople. Yes. 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 So, yes. so that, the, those walls are where we are now, brothers and sisters. Those would have been the walls of the fortifications of Constantinople. Well, there we so go. Thank you very, very much for that. And there's actually a little bit of a story. Why, why was Constantine so grateful to the Pope anyway? Well, there's a story there that Sylvester cured him of leprosy or something by some miracle. And he's so grateful. Constantine is so grateful. Have my kingdom. Have the Roman Empire. As you do, you know, when you're grateful. So that's apparently what's happening there. But it's all fake, I'm afraid. Sorry. What was the reason? Yeah. The reason, yes, the question is, uh, the reason, why did Erasmus allow the Trinity verse to go into his critical edition of the New Testament? As I say, it's a very sad story, actually, because he, he was heavily criticised by the church of his day for removing this precious Trinity verse, because it's the, it's the Catholic faith. So he said, look, give me a Greek manuscript He's a Renaissance scholar, back to the original languages, back to the original... Give me a Greek manuscript that has it in, and I'll put it back in again. And the church actually produced one and gave it to him. And he was good as his word, and he put it in. He put it back in. That's the story. And if you read it, it's actually true. This is what happened. Um, Whether or not he believed it was genuine, who knows? But he said he would put it back in if he was given the evidence. The evidence was manufactured in that day. It wasn't an ancient manuscript. Very sad. I don't know, actually. It's a good question whether he knew that it was fake or not, or just manufactured on the spot. I don't know. I, I, would, th- I would suspect that he knew. In those days, you could be executed if you were caused trouble, by the way. This is not like just an academic thing. You could suffer great pain. Um, we'll come to an example of someone who did challenge the church, Michael Servetus, in a minute, who was burnt at the stake for challenging the church. So it was seriously high stakes. It wasn't just an academic thing. So did you have... Um... Um, yeah, I was just going to just clarify. So my understanding is, because I've heard the name this a lot, um, just because you hear it, you are very similar, it was basically, uh, they were kind of, Europe was kind of tired of Christianity and they felt that it was keeping them down and stopping them from progressing. So they kind of wanted to move back to, like, so the glory days of Greek rule, which is their only, like, their major Western ancestral. Kind of mm, mm. It's a bit like we wanted to make Europe great again. Okay, um, yep, yep, there's some truth in that. Um, I, I, in, in answer to that, I, I want to come to, and it is related to what you're saying, to this, this guy um, here. Um, we're just going to move on. Again, we're skirting over so many issues here, we don't have time to go into the many depth. But th- this man is a colossal guy on, on the stage of Western, of Europe, and now the world. His name is Martin Luther. You probably heard of Martin Luther King, the civil rights leader in the 60s. Not the same guy, um, but Martin Luther King was named after him, and they added the word king on the end. Anyway, so this guy was a, a German, of course, Martin Luther, um, and he was, um, he's famous. Uh, so he was born in 1483, 1483, so roughly the same time uh, as Erasmus. And we're going to look at the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, why it came about and why it's so important today. So... Martin Luther started his career, and this is the younger Martin Luther. Um, This is a picture of him posting his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg in Germany. This is in 1571. And this is a key moment in European history. Uh, Many would say, well, virtually everyone says, that this symbolically, this act, symbolically started the Reformation. Now, what is the Reformation? Now, Martin Luther, as all the reformers were, like John Calvin and others, they're all Catholics. They're good, good Roman Catholic people, priests, monks. But they left the church or were forced out the church because they disagreed with the Catholic church in the medieval period. They argued for, Martin Luther argued, for a return to the Bible alone as authoritative for Christians. He argued for justification by faith alone and I'll I'll define what these mean in a second. He argued for the rejection of the Pope for nuns and monks. He called the Pope the Antichrist. He was so anti-Pope, 
He actually called him the Antichrist. And the Pope returned the compliment and kicked him out of the church. He excommunicated him, which at that time was a risk, meant his life was at risk. They also, reformers like Martin Luther, believed in the individual before God. We see in the Renaissance, in many ways, the beginning of individualism in Europe. This is why it's so important. Before in the medieval period, you had a much more organic, collectivist understanding of faith. You're a member of the church, the body of Christ, the Catholic church on earth. It's not really you as an individual that matters so much. It's the church, the, the communion of saints, the papacy. But with Martin Luther, you see the beginning of this idea of the individual person before God, unmediated by the church, by priests or saints. So you stand directly before What's that? What religion does that remind you of? <laughs> it's quite, sim quite similar to Islam, of course. He was against purgatory and the selling of indulgences. So let me unpack that a little bit. So the idea of justification by faith alone is the idea that we are made right before God. How, how are we as sinners? Because we're terrible sinners, says Martin Luther. How can God accept, how can a holy God accept us? So he argued, and that's based on some of the writings of Paul in the New Testament, that simply by having faith in Christ, that we are made right with God. Not through good works, not by behaving well. This is a really important point. Justification by faith alone. This is called sola fide in Latin. That's the slogan that was used. This was very much against Catholic teaching, which emphasised faith and works. Islam does the same, I think. Faith and works. He said, no, 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 works don't count at all. Works are like filthy rags, he said. It's faith alone that justifies, that makes you right with God, he said. So he rejected the Pope and nuns and, monks, nuns and monks. Why? Because where does it mention in the Bible anything about the Pope or about nuns or monks? He said, out with them. He ended up marrying a nun, by the way. Well, an ex-nun. She left the church. Obviously, she left the convent. They got married. Um, purgatory. The idea that, um, in the medieval period anyway, that um, unless you were really super-duper saint, you went to purgatory where you were purged of your sins, usually quite painfully for a long time. He said, where's that in the Bible? Kick that out. And the, the most famous thing of all is the sale of indulgences. And this is really what upset Martin Luther, because there were people in, from the Catholic Church who went around selling um, indulgences. The idea you could get time off in purgatory, uh, if you bought these indulgences and say these prayers, you actually give money. And this caused huge scandal. And Martin Luther, one of the 95 theses, says indulgences are haram, shall we say, <laughs> completely wrong. And indeed, later the church did reform its practices in the Counter-Reformation at the Council of Trent. It did actually take some of his criticisms on board, not many, and try to reform itself in reaction to the Reformation. So the word reformation is reform, reformation. He tried to reform the church, <coughs> failed, got kicked out of the church, and the Protestant movement began. Protestant is the word for protest. If you protest against something, you're a Protestant, a Protestant. And so many churches today are directly descended from that protest. Evangelicals, for example, are all Protestants. Um, even the Church of England is supposed to be Protestant. That's a different story. But uh, Pentecostalists are Protestant. Jehovah's Witnesses are Protestant. In fact, anyone who's not a Catholic is a Protestant, basically. Um, and he started the, uh, the Reformation. Interestingly, actually, I came across this quote on a website, an academic website, about his views, Martin Luther's views, when it came to Muslims and Islam. I just want to share with you what he said. Now, he lived at the time when the Ottoman Empire... Hey, hey, was at its, well, arguably at its zenith. So what did he have to say about that and Muslims and Islam? Because maybe he hated the Pope as the Antichrist, so maybe he'd say something even worse about Muslims, surely. And he said this, and I quote, We see that the religion of the Turks, i.e. Muslims, is far more splendid in ceremonies, and I might almost say in customs, than ours, even including that of the religious, that's monks and nuns, and or all the clerics, the modesty and simplicity of their food, clothing, dwellings, and everything else, as well as the fasts, prayers, and the common gatherings of the people that this book reveals, that's his book that he wrote, are nowhere seen among us 
or rather it is impossible for our people to be persuaded to them. So in other words, no matter how much Luther exhorts people to be more like this, can't do it. Furthermore, he writes, which of our monks, be it a Carthusian, they who wish to appear the best, or a Benedictine, is not put to shame by the miraculous and wondrous abstinence and discipline, discipline among their religious. Our religious are mere shadows when compared to them, and our people clearly profane when compared to theirs. Not even true Christians, not Christ himself, nor the apostles or prophets ever exhibited so great a display. Now, I think he's being ambiguous here. There's an ambiguous com compliment. Uh, there's a little bit of an element of tongue-in-cheek because if you know Luther, he didn't like ostentatious display. The Gospels are against that. He didn't like abstinence for the sake of abstinence. So he's being, a, it's an ambiguous compliment. But nevertheless, I'll just read the rest of it. This is the reason, he writes, he writes, why many persons so easily depart from faith in Christ for Mohammedanism, as he calls it, and adhere to it so tenaciously. I sincerely believe, he says, that no papist, monk, cleric, or their equal in faith would be able to remain in their faith if they should spend three days among the Turks. Wow. Just three days amongst Muslims in, in um, the Ottoman Empire. Here I mean those who seriously desire the faith of the Pope and who are the best among them. Now, I, I, think, I think, as I say, there are various levels of sincerity in what he's saying here. But, but re even so, he's clearly impressed. He's clearly impressed by the Ottoman, the Turks, as he calls, as he calls them. And he doesn't call them the Antichrist. He doesn't call them of the devil. Sorry. There, is, there is a line there that, that's interesting for us as converts, which mm. is where he talks about um, which is what, which is, sorry. sorry, he says it's really easy for uh, uh, so many of the Christians to convert to Mohammedism, which means that in his time they must have been seeing a lot of conversions. Yes, exactly right. I think that's a really good point. Clearly, it's a problem. It's clearly is a problem that Western Christians, Catholics, are becoming Muslims. And in those days, of course, you couldn't just become a Muslim like in London and just carry on living. You had to leave because you would have been killed. Uh, that there was no tolerance for Muslims in the Christian world, unlike in the Muslim world, where, of course, the Sharia requires, you, requires us to show respect for Christians so they can practice their faith. Very different in medieval Europe and Renaissance Europe. So it's a very good point. Here we, here we see not only, I think, a slight ambiguous compliment, but also his anxiety about uh, Western Christians converting to Islam because, in many ways, it's a superior faith. Uh, and uh, he bears witness to that, ironically. So, sorry. Please. What level of interaction was there in medieval times? I mean, surely the, you know, there was no communication between two different religious groups. So how did the Western Christians in what countries were they converting? I think that's a, good, a really good question. So the gentleman was asking, you know, what kind of interaction was there in this world, uh, in that world between... Uh, Christian world and the Muslim world. And I think part of the answer um, may be found in, in, in the coins that I showed a couple of days ago. I don't have them with me now. Um, King Offa in the, seventh, the, the 8th century England, the King of England, or the King of Mercia to be technical, a Christian king, issued gold coinage with the Shahada on it in Arabic, okay, with King Offa on it. Why did he do that? Well, historians say it's because of the, the dominance of uh, the dinar, the Islamic currency, in the medieval world. And so England was getting in on the act, producing coinage that could be used in international trade in the, uh, in the Mediterranean world. Because the centre of gravity then wasn't England or Northern Europe, it was the Muslim world. So I think there was a great deal of trade, a great deal of connection between traders and people and travellers and businessmen and others, itinerant, whatever, between these civilizations. And also, of course, um, the, the Crusades happened as well. A lot of the, um, you know, the Pope sent armies uh, into the Middle East, but often they came with their families and other people. There must have been conversions there too, I would think. So there was interaction, I think, between the, uh, particularly on the commercial level, between the two civilizations. Um, 
And also for Luther, uh, um, I'm not quoting him here, but the Turks, interestingly, were the rod of God's anger towards the lukewarm Christianity uh, propagated by the Catholic Church based in Rome. So he saw the, Tur the Turks as the rod of God's anger. And he argued that fighting against the Turks would be the same as fighting against God's judgment for their sins. Okay, I'm not making this stuff up, it's rather controversial. Rather than fight with swords, Luther called for spiritual transformation through repentance and prayer. Sounds very Anglican, doesn't it? When you've got a crisis, then you... No, I shouldn't say that. No, so it's a very kind of spiritual reaction rather than a military one or a combative one. Fascinating. And he even accuses the popes of perpetuating the problem with the Turks by choosing to crusade against them. Instead when they should have been sending missionaries with the gospel instead. So he's saying, don't fight the Turks. They've been used by God to judge us. But to send missionaries, convert the, the Muslims. But he's kind of already conceded that doesn't work anyway, because <laughs> they tend to get converted to Islam. So I'm not sure that was a great strategy. Um, so that's uh, Martin Luther. But so he's very, very influential today. His ideas about justification by faith, a reformed Christianity, moving away from the, the alleged kind of um, uh, uh, accretions to the Christian faith that the Catholic Church brought in, worship of saints, the role of Mary, very controversial. You know, Mary is the mother of God. Theotokos um, was rejected uh, by many of the reformers. And back to what they saw as the early Christianity of the New Testament. That's the faith. Ad fontes. Remember the Renaissance slogan? So it's kind of the same idea about going back to the original sources, purifying the faith, moving away from the Catholic tradition, which had added so many man-made doctrines to the faith, they argued. So that's kind of, And that beating heart, you see it all over the internet. There are lots of websites now still by evangelicals in America, particularly criticising the Catholic Church even today for the same reasons that Martin, Martin Luther did. But, but also, I think, for, for, on a more general way, this emphasis on the individual standing before God without any mediation by the church, Mary, saints, pope, priests, whatever. This is a, you can see this modern idea of the individual. Me, I, stand before God uh, without any kind of corporate Catholic institution. So there's a familiar idea there. Um, before we come to that last one, I just want to introduce briefly another guy uh, called John Calvin, um, who uh, came a little bit after um, Martin Luther. He was a French guy, Jean Calvin, a uh, Catholic priest initially. Uh, he left the church. Uh, he wrote a very famous book called The Institutes of Christian Religion, um, which are hugely influential in terms of Christian theology. But the reason I mention him is not only because he's almost, if not as equal in influence as Martin Luther today, is there's an interesting story about him which I wanted to share with you. And it concerns this chap, Michael Servetus. Very interesting man. Um, John Calvin was a very influential theologian. He ended up in Geneva. He had to leave France. He was persecuted. France was Catholic, of course. It's before the French Revolution. So he ended up in Geneva, which is in Switzerland. And he and others formed a, I suppose you could call it a theocracy, basically. A city-state ruled by his ideas, by what he would say was the Bible. So it was actually illegal to commit adultery. It was illegal to to commit to all sorts of Christian sins. It was like a, an Iranian theocracy but in Geneva. It was like, you know, and very rigid and quite harsh. And I mention this because it attracted a lot of attention. And this guy, Michael Servetus, was a polymath. He was like a brilliant man who uh, uh, was a, a doctor. He was a scholar, a biblical scholar, spoke many languages. He'd met Muslims in Spain, uh, he'd met Jews, and he, he was just a brilliant man. And his own learning led him to question some doctrines, particularly the doctrine of the Trinity, which he felt, actually, because he felt, the, he felt the, not the ridicule, but the scorn, the polemics on Muslims, particularly, and Jews. He said, look, how can you believe God is three? God is one. How can you believe Jesus is God? And he came up with these points. He's a Christian, by the way. He's not a Muslim. 
but you could see the influence of Islam. He met Muslims. Um, and he was an outspoken guy as well. I mean, that was his downfall. He was outspoken. Um, so he, he went to Geneva to meet Calvin. He said, look, I want to talk to you. We didn't quite put it that way. But he wrote to him and he, he actually physically went to Geneva. And of course, what did John Calvin do? He had him arrested. And it was agreed by the council, with Calvin's support, that he should be executed. Why? Well, because he didn't agree with the Trinity. I mean, seriously, that was his crime. And the poor guy was burnt to death for his crime. And there's a whole bit of detail, which I'll just quickly mention, because it kind of is real. Usually when you burn people to death in, the, in that time, you kind of strangle them first as a kind of humane thing. He wasn't strangled. He was burnt to death, literally. And at the top left, you can see this little representation of him being a martyr in a way. And, and many Unitarian Christians, those who believe that God is one in the Tawhid sense, still look to him as um, a great inspiration. And what's sad is other, not just Calvinists, people who followed John Calvin, but Martin Luther agreed with this execution and did the Catholic Church. All of Christian Europe officially supported his execution. No one was against him. So he, he was executed purely because of his ideas on the Trinity. Sorry. John, there's, there's something I... Yeah. There's something that it's really hard for us to get hold on. Why was the Catholic Church so committed to this invention of the Trinity? What did it give to their church? And what, what would not having it have taken away? Why, do, you, do you have any thoughts or overview or, or knowledge on how would the Catholic Church have been different had it been monotheist? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Very good question. I, I think... One historical answer is, if we wind the clock back um, to, I think it's the 5th century, there was a, a, an emperor who succeeded Constantine called Theodosius. I think it was Theodosius II. Uh, he was a Christian. And what he did was, um, which Constantine didn't do, Theodosius made it, he banned all non-Christian faith, but he made it a crime, a capital crime, to deny the Trinity publicly. I mean, you know, to, to deny it publicly. If, if you were known to deny the Trinity, you could be executed. It was a capital offence in the Roman Empire. And I think then we see the beginning, arguably, of the medieval world, where there, there was a totalitarian, rigid, one-dimensional understanding. Any plurality, we see much plurality in the early church. We see Arius and Athanasius. We see people who say, well, Jesus isn't God in that sense that the Father is. He, he's... He might be a divine figure, but he's not really God in that absolute set. You see much more nuance and debate and exchange of ideas for, for many centuries. But beginning, I think, with Theodosius, you see what we would call the medieval world, when all that was shut down by edict of Rome, by the Roman emperor and the pope. And so for a thousand years or more, there was no debate. You couldn't have a debate because you would have been killed. You would have been killed. And even the reformers who left the Catholic Church because of its you know, man-made doctrines about purgatory and saints and all that jazz. They still believed in the Trinity. They didn't go, I would argue, they didn't go back far enough. Ad fontes, go back to the sources. If you look at the early Gospels, you don't see the Trinity taught anywhere. Jesus says, apparently, in Mark chapter 10, a man comes to Jesus, I said the other day, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. So it says that in Mark's Gospel, the earliest Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, 18, and 19. How does that fit into Trinitarianism? You tell me. <laughs> it's not there. But later church tradition, obviously, uh, I mean, that's an another long story, how Trinitarianism evolved. It took many centuries. But ultimately, it was backed up with military state power. And it was enforced on people for over a thousand years. And when people started to protest, because of the Renaissance, back to the sources, they were initially persecuted and even executed. Um, so that's, that's, that's the, the, re, the real politique of it, unfortunately. Yeah, yes. I just want to add that a lot of the crusades, most of the crusades have actually happened in Do you want to say me? Yeah. Thank uh, you. I just want to add that uh, most of the crusades actually happened in Europe, and a lot of them towards other fellow Christians. True. Oh, this is very true. We're talking about the Inquisition, uh, the, the, the Inquisition in France and Spain. Yes. 
uh, oh, this is very true. Uh, this is no, this is very true. Yeah, this is, this is a good point actually. In uh, in in, the, in southern France, um, th- there were a group of called the Cathars, a group of Christians. Um, who were very popular, uh, particularly in southwest France, where I, where I kind of live as well. And, um, and th- they were, uh, say, Christians, and they were systematically exterminated, or persecuted and exterminated by the Catholic Church in the Inquisition. It's not just the Spanish Inquisition, there was a French Inquisition, Inquisitions all over the place. And there are stories of them, you know, whole families being holed up in their churches and burnt alive. And so, I mean, it's really happened. So there was systematic, well, we, to use modern language, to use our own language today, the church was involved in systematic terrorism, which sought to exterminate through terrorism, and this is a modern language, uh, its opponents. And it did so ruthlessly, without any sense of the rule of law. And this was the norm. And you compare that with the, the Ottoman ethos, which some people here can know much better than I do, of, of, of tolerance, of, of civility, of letting differences you know, exist, between people, letting Christians be Christians and Jews be Jews within the Islamic world. It's a completely different planet. I can't stress how different that was. And if you were a Jew in Europe, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, Martin Luther, not him, the other guy, uh, was so rabidly anti-Jewish that his works were quoted by the Nazis in the 1930s um, to justify their doctrines. And, and during the Nuremberg trials, I forget the name of the guy who's the editor of the most notorious Nazi newspaper, his defence was, I was just quoting Martin Luther. These ideas are German. They go back to this great reformer. Because many of the Nazis, the rhetoric uh, that, that Martin Luther, and interesting, compare that with the Turks. For some reason, he didn't like the Jews. But he um, it was very extreme. And I say picked up by the National Socialists in Germany, uh, 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 so they were part of a long anti-Semitic tradition, the German, German Nazis. It wasn't just Hitler who suddenly invented all this. Sadly, he had uh, a history that went back many, many centuries. Um, and that's a legacy that... Uh, uh, coming back to Calvin, by the way. So what I find interesting about Calvin... The modern followers of Calvin are called Calvinists. Um, and they're very, very popular, particularly in the United States. They're called evangelicals. I mean, most evangelicals, I think, are Calvinists. They look to, not him, but to Calvin as, um, for their inspiration. I mentioned his great work, The Institutes of Christian Religion. And so he's a very respected figure, this noble uh, reformer from Geneva who brought God's word back, you know, a fresh, a fresh preaching of God's word to Europe after centuries of Catholic darkness. But I mention this is because, you know, imagine Muhammad, upon whom be peace, had burnt to death his opponents. I mean, how that would have been used by, by his opponents and Christians to rubbish him and criticise him and damn him. But Calvin had a man burnt to death. And yet, where is the opprobrium about him? Where, oh, how could you support a man who did such terrible things to people who just disagree with him on theology? Exactly, exactly. The rhetoric would be, yeah, yeah, the accusations, as as Sister was saying, the accusations would have been made to Calvinists. Do you believe, you know, you you could really poke them and say, do you believe in burning people at the stake? Well, you're John Calvin. This is your religion. How can you support a religion that terrorised other people and had them burnt to death? Do you see what I mean? But it doesn't happen. And I think it's odd, isn't it, that you get this double standard, this inconsistency, where this is kind of overlooked, Let's just overlook this embarrassing episode. But it was a fruit of his mindset, of his theology, of his outlook. It was totally intolerant, that's putting it mildly. Uh, and yet he is a very respected figure amongst in evangelical circles. So that's the, the, the sad story of uh, Michael Servetus. So do you ha- anyone have it? Yes, sister. No, absolutely not. That's a good point. Um, just to give a little bit of more academic or scholarly depth to it then. Um, what scholars, scholars today, when they look at the Reformation, they talk about the magisterial Reformation, the Reformation including Calvin, Luther, Zwingli and others, and then it's called the Radical Reformation, which also existed at the time. The Radical Reformers didn't like Luther or Calvin, 
No, that they rejected them because many of the reformers believed in infant baptism, for example, that babies could be baptised. The radicals said, no, you, you don't baptise babies. It's believers' baptism. So you get the Baptists who, who come from that tradition. The Quakers, um, associated with people like George Fox, the famous American Quaker, had a much more... Um, they believed it in the inner light. So it was much less fundamentalist and based on Bible in a very strict way. It was more interior, more spiritual, the inner light. And they were called Quakers. Not, they didn't call themselves Quakers, but it's because they used to quake in their meetings. They used to kind of shake, and their enemies called them Quakers. <laughs> um, but they were persecuted, um, the radical reformers, by the Lutherans and the, Calvin, uh, the Calvinists, not surprisingly, because that's kind of what they did. So in Germany, there are stories in Munster, I think it is, of the radical reformers taking over the city, basically, and the Lutherans and others going in and uh, suppressing their, their radical reform faith, and they drown, they're executed by drowning in the river, uh, many of their leaders for their, reformed, their radical reformed ideas. So um, the radical reformation today, you'll find it, as I mentioned, in Baptists, Quakers, but these ideas are kind of, I don't know, they're, 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 that, they're not that divisive anymore in the modern world. I mean, people may disagree with that, but I don't think Lutherans are persecuting the radical reformers anymore, and I, I, I think that's kind of ye old idea, not so much today. Sorry. How do modern Calvinists look at the story of the mind of serpent? Do they deny it? Do they derive rulings from it? I don't think most have heard of him. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a whitewashed history. Um, those that have, um, and I've read, a couple of, I've read a couple of responses from Calvinists, and they, will, they tend to major on the idea, oh, well, that was, that's what they did in those days, at that time. You look in the historical context, that's how people behaved. You know, everyone burnt everyone else, you know, so, as you do. Um, so it's kind of, but they don't see any organic, intrinsic link with the mentality of Calvin and what he did. It wasn't just Calvin, by the way. I don't want to kind of stigmatise him exclusively because all Christians agree, people like him agreed. So um, I th they make their excuses and they say, oh, well, that was, that, that was time. But his, his ideas are, you know, about the gospel and what matter. So they'll make excuses, basically. But most Calvinists have no idea about Michael Servetus, I'm sure. Is there any other questions? Yes. Mm. Perhaps some of the potential reasons for why the, you know, the Trinity was held on very tightly. Mm. Um, perhaps, you know, one of the, you mentioned the historical reason, but maybe one of the political reasons would be that yeah, the Trinity was uh, dropped out of the picture. It would open a door to the easiness or the ease in converting to or accepting Prophet Muhammad to the bottom because if you're a Christian Unitarian, mm. you're closer one step to mm. accepting the message of Prophet Muhammad. And this would entail that, you know, politically, you, you'd have to, if the public would accept, the majority of the public would accept Prophet Muhammad's message, mm. upon them, then perhaps this is going to change the demographics of the yeah, yeah, and the brother's sort of saying, yes, if, they, if we acknowledge the truth about the, the Trinity, then it might have led to a, cl a closer engagement, understanding with Islam, the Muslim. Yeah, I, I can see that, yeah. I mean, the, the medieval ideas about Islam were completely bizarre and wrong. I mean, uh, uh, Muslims are often re regarded as polytheists. I, I know, it, it, you, you wouldn't believe what was said about Muslims, just complete inventions. There was no real understanding of what was going on amongst like 99% of people. You think today's bad, it was much worse then. Um, sorry, Sister. So just to comment on Sister Lauren's so do you want to? query. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I heard like a chief once say that shirk in any form can include the Trinity may be a, um, a way of shirking responsibility. So you don't have to take responsibility for your own actions. And... Um, uh, in a way, that, that's what they were trying to do, but in, also they had like mediators to like take away your sins or absolve yourselves of sins, and if you don't have the mediators, um, the mediators were like, had the power, and if 
um, and through, through that you, you had power, land, wealth, whatever, because you were a mediator in that. And um, obviously the Roman Catholic Church was quite well known for that, as I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously if, if you had to give up the Trinity, you'd have to give up the mediator's aspect of it. Mm. And so you'd have to give up their power and it would like, undermine the power and wealth and what have you. Yeah, no, I think and that's... Would you agree with that? No, I think that's, that's, that's very true. And, uh, and also I want to stress that the, the idea of the individual before God, the individual conscience um, deciding, just reading the Bible alone, this feeds into a very kind of individualist mentality that rose in Europe, and we still see that today, particularly in America, um, as opposed to the more corporate idea of, you know, we're part of a collective, the church, and others mediate our own faith, priests, the papacy. So um, th- this led to, and also it led to what's called the Protestant work ethic as well, the idea that in the, in the medieval world, if you really wanted to be holy, you become a, um, a monk or, or a nun. You give up worldly life and you become celibate and you live in a monastery or a convent, if you, if you sort of mean, or a priest. But with, with the reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin, Again, it was, some of it was quite good, the Reformation, was an emphasis on the, the sanctity of work, the, the ordinary man, the ploughman, for example, who could read his, the Bible for himself without the church, and uh, his work is holy and sanctified because work has dignity before God. And you can do something for the glory of God. You can do your work for the glory of God. So this sense of the sanctity of the, the labourer, of the, of the common man, was a really important theme, I think, in the Reformation, going against the Catholic idea of you're, you're a super holy, you become a nun, you are, okay. Um, uh, a, a more otherworldly understanding of holiness. So the Reformation brought, and you get this sense of, um, again, in certain parts of Europe and the United States, that making a lot of money, making a lot of wealth is good because God's blessing you, yeah? If, if, you're, if you're prosperous, that means God likes you, he's blessing you, giving you lots of wealth. And there are passages in the Bible, particularly in the Jewish Bible, which kind of suggest that is true, if you believe that. Not in so much in Jesus' teaching, of course. Um, so that's another, another long-term impact of the Reformation. The sanctity of work, the individual conscience before God, apart from the church, um, the dignity of the individual. Um, but it led to wars, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, for a long, long time, Catholics and Protestants fought this out militarily in Europe, and millions of people died um, before we had the Treaty of Westphalia, which was a famous treaty in the 16th century, which basically said, if you've got a Catholic prince or Catholic king, that's what the religion will be of that country. If you've got a Protestant ruler, that will be his religion. And each one can have his own faith in his own dominion. But this was the breakdown, the destruction of Christendom, the idea of one faith, one people, you know, throughout entire Europe. Wherever you were, you were Catholic, basically. Um, and that completely was destroyed with the Reformation, and Europe broke up. And that, you get the beginning of nation-states. You get the beginning of Britain, for example, or England, I should say, um, where you have the birth of the Church of England. So you have Henry VIII, uh, in England in the early 16th century who famously wanted a divorce, <laughs> wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon, wouldn't give many children, poor love, and she was Spanish, Aragon. And uh, the Pope said, no, you can't divorce, this goes against the teaching of the church. So um, Henry VIII, who really, really, really wanted an heir, because it mattered then, by the way, he wasn't just being egotistic, you really needed an heir to ensure stability and continuity of the country. Um, he basically declared himself, Henry, head of the church in England. He was still a Catholic, by the way. People often get this wrong. You think, oh, he rejected... No, he didn't reject Catholicism. He rejected the Pope. Um, you know, he still believed in the seven sacraments of the church and all the rest of it, initially. Um, so he declared himself, Henry VIII, as head of the church. And still today, Queen Elizabeth II is the head of the church. She's not, she's not, we don't live in a secular society, officially, in England. Um, so this was, again, a, a reforming... And, sorry, because of that, he um, gave more space in England for more reformed ideas. And so you see the Reformation happening in England, particularly with Elizabeth, his daughter, when she succeeded, uh, uh, and, uh, and others, uh, Edward VI, I think it was, you see a much stronger Protestant 
religion being introduced into England and the Catholic Church was banned, uh, funnily enough. And uh, England, who had been Catholic, being Catholic, became Protestant. Um, and, you know, we, we see similar developments in Germany and in the Scandinavian countries, particularly in the Northern Europe, which became more or less Protestant. In Southern Europe remained more or less Catholic, you know, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and so on. So it was a geopolitical, massive disruption. It affected uh, uh, millions and millions of people. And if you were part of a minority, like in England, if you were the wrong sect, you could be persecuted under Elizabeth. And some of these guys left England and they went to a place called America on the Mayflower. And these were refugees from, a, you know, religious refugees. And they were Protestants, seriously committed Protestants. Many of them were Calvinists. Calvinists. So they went to America, which of course was not inhabited by any other... Oh no, hang on, it was. It was already inhabited by many other nations. Uh, the indigenous, uh, what we call the indigenous uh, Americans. So anyway, so th that was the beginning of famously the Mayflower, which Americans all know about. A bunch of English people left Plymouth, which is a city in southern England, a seaport, went off to America, and the rest is history, as they say. So America became a Protestant country, um, if officially a republic, but it, nevertheless it was predominantly. And then they persecuted Catholics, when Italians went to New York, wherever, they were persecuted by the Protestants, of course, because that's what you do. Um, so, but so you get this sense of, I would argue, the Protestant individualism, uh, the sanctity of making a lot of money. Um, you see these, and the sectarianism, there's a kind of binary worldview that Calvinists have, you know, good and evil. You know, we're good, bad. You know, you get this sense of the, the othering, the demonization of the other in Calvinism. I think you still see that psychology operating politically in places like the US. It's much more complicated than that, but I think there is an element of that in America, and it has its roots in the Reformation, I think. Um, so, is this relevant today? You bet it is. And in America, millions and millions of Americans are passionately Christian, and, and most of them support Calvin or Luther. And their ideas matter because they end up influencing the globe through the hegemony of the West these days. That's all my opinion, by the way. Feel free to disagree. <laughs> Do anyone have any comments they wanted to make about that or questions? No? So oh, yeah. Just one quick yeah. uh, I think I should probably know this, but uh, just to clarify. So, uh, being Catholic king in England in days like how many years time, you weren't allowed to divorce. That's right. Divorce was completely. Yeah, no, well, yeah, yeah. No, you couldn't divorce. A divorce is still not permitted in the Catholic Church today. You can get an annulment, which is something slightly different. It basically says there never was a marriage in the first place, really. And you have to get a judge in the Catholic Church to make that ruling. Um, like in Wormfarm in London, the, the Westminster have a tribunal of Catholic priests, and you, if I'm a Catholic, I'm married, and I believe the marriage is just not working. I say, oh, I don't really, there are reasons why the marriage doesn't, it never really exists in the first place. And, they, and they, they can let you off that way. But there's no divorce for Catholics, officially, absolutely not. What's the difference between Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism? No, and it's extremely... I've ignored the Orthodox because it's like a whole other uh, subject. No, but it's, it's a very good point. Uh, the, the, the Roman Empire, as we know, covered most of the... Well, all of the Mediterranean area, went to the east, uh, what we would call Syria. It, far, you know, it covered a massive area of, of the west. And when um, the Roman Empire in the west, in the 4th, 5th and 6th centuries, came under a lot of attack from um, the Visigoths and others from the north... The western part of the Roman Empire basically collapsed, but the eastern part of the Roman Empire continued uh, for a thousand years or more, and that was called came to be called Byzantium. And Constantine, as some people here know far better than I, founded the New Rome. So you got the old Rome in Italy. The New Rome was called um, Constantinople, where we're literally standing now in Istanbul. So um, the eastern part of the Roman Empire continued. Uh, with its centre of gravity uh, in Constantinople. And there was a big split. I mean, there'd been a split 
unofficially for a long, long time before the 10th century. But in the 10th century, I forget the exact date, 10 something, 11th century, there was an official split between the Catholic West and the Orthodox East. And that schism, that split has never been healed ever since. And one of the contributors to that was the donation of Constantine, which I mentioned earlier. The papacy would say, look, Constantine gave us rulership over all this. Why are you not submitting, you Orthodox? And they're saying, it's a fake. Well, it is a fake. Um, so that contributed to this split between East and West. So now we have lots of Orthodox churches, and just one. You get the Orthodox Church in Greece, uh, the Orthodox Church in Egypt, the Coptic Church in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, and so on and so on. And there, and there are many kind of splinters off from that. Um, and many of them have their own popes. They're actually called popes. There's a pope in Egypt, for example. Yeah. Just a quick comment about that, that schism. It's okay. Uh, that schism was that um, before the Muslims came in of the 1450s and conquered Constantinople, there had been um, crusades against the Eastern Church mm. that had almost completely destroyed where Hagia Sophia. So when the Muslims came and uh, you know, Fatih Mehmed Rahim Allah came to Constantinople, Hagia Sophia was in a state of disrepair. Oh. So actually it was the Muslims who saved Hagia Sophia. Mm, Otherwise, mm. arguably, and this is the Greek um, Orthodox Church today, even they admit that without the Muslims caring for Hagia Sophia, it would have gone uh, to well mm. six, seven hundred years ago. Now this is very true. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And there's another story which I've not mentioned um, is, is the story of the Jews in, in, West, in Western Europe. Um, there's a famous article by an American uh, historian, Jewish historian, saying that Islam saved Jewry. Islam saved Jewry. If you Google that expression, you'll be able to read the article. It's in the Jerusalem uh, Chronicle. It was originally a lecture given at SOAS in London. And, and he said, literally, Islam saved the Jews. And if it hadn't been for the Jews, uh, Islam or Muslims, Jews would be would have been wiped out because um, when, for example, the Muslims enter into the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century, uh, the Jews were about to be exterminated there, uh, the children were taken away from Jewish parents and forced to be Christian, uh, and it was, uh, it was horrible, horrible. But when Muslims entered into that area, they, they, Jews were allowed to, in fact, the argument is that many Jews allowed Muslims in uh, through the back door because they knew they would be given rights that we didn't have under Christian rule. Um, so many, uh, because of persecution in the West, many Jews went to Muslim lands um, where they thrived commercially, culturally. You saw their own renaissance of learning. Um, and you also see that in Baghdad, where you had the uh, translation movement in the 8th and 9th centuries, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims uh, translated a lot of Greek works into Arabic. Uh, and you saw this incredible civilization developing, also in Andalusia as well, in Muslim Spain. But um, if it hadn't been for the Muslim world, uh, he argued, uh, Jews would have been uh, exterminated, basically. Um, and that's often an embarrassing fact for people in the West. They don't want to acknowledge that because it doesn't fit into their narrative so much. And he says this in the article, which I recommend. It's called, what, uh, uh, Islam Saved Jewry. J-E-W-R-Y. If you just Google that article, it's freely available online. He's a very distinguished American professor of Islamic history. Um, and uh, it's quite an eye-opener, actually. Uh, the, the, the facts are often very different from what we're being told. So, oh, yeah, brother. <clears throat> Apart from the geographical distinction Oh, yes, good point. Yeah, the brother's asking about the theological differences between the Orthodox churches in the East uh, and the Catholic Church. I guess the biggest one would have to be the papacy, the role of the Pope. Uh, the, the, um, the Orthodox Church have always said, look, the Bishop of Rome, who is the Pope, yeah, he's the first amongst equals. He maybe has the first place uh, because if you look at the Gospels, Peter 
is the first of the apostles. But there are other apostles, but yeah, he has first rank. But we don't accord the Pope the, the title, the Vicar of Christ, which he had in the West. We still call that now. The idea that he is supremo over the whole of the church, that he has universal jurisdiction, that he, he has an immediate relationship with every Catholic spiritually. I mean, his, his role, his status is so exalted in the Catholic church, mainly because of developments in the medieval world, that this is totally unacceptable to the Orthodox. They were willing to give the, the Bishop of Rome some seniority or the first place, but not the exalted role that he came to have. I mean, he, he, for example, he can issue infallible statements called ex-cathedra statements. And he has, the popes have done so, um, about Mary, for example. And the authors say, the pope can't do that. This is not the pope's, you know, no way can a man do that. So they, they had this big problem with the papacy. I mean, the, our current pontiff, um, Francis, Pope Francis in Rome, has tried to reach out, has reached out to many orthodox church le- leaders with some success, but many orthodox just don't recognise him. They just think he's you know, not a good dude. Not because he's Francis, but because he's the Pope, you know. So there is a fundamental fracture in Christendom. And I don't see it ever splitting up. Indeed, the Quran speaks about this, actually, doesn't it? It talks about how the divisions amongst Christians will last until the Day of Judgment. This is, this is almost like the judgment of God. It's, it's part of the the reality of the Christian world is fractured, deeply divided, and it will always be like that until the end. Um, do, do you know, I don't know if you know the ayah in the Quran. Um, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of paraphrasing it off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, yeah. So, I think that's, uh, that's it. I'm supposed to finish at quarter past. There's half an hour's uh, break before Hamza Thoughtsis, uh continues. So thank you very much.